understand how it is that Mark uh, and his companions saw in Jesus to better understand their eyewitness account of who Jesus is, and particularly to better understood understand what it is that they saw in this man that made them just um, turn the world upside down in spreading the good news about him. Um, we, as a church like any church, and, and we as people like any people, we have strengths and weaknesses, but one of the ways we most want to grow is in um, disciple-making, in evangelism. Uh, these are the core calls of the Christian life, as we've talked about before, and they're, they're things we want to uh, do well in. And so we are looking at the Gospel of Mark, at the portrait of Jesus that we find there, trying to ask, what is it that helps us share the good news about Jesus Christ with the world around us. So that's our aim. We're in week four of seven. So hopefully you're, you're getting some good takeaways if you've been with us for those weeks. Uh, perhaps you have uh, greater aspirations to make Christ known. Perhaps you have ideas of, of either, um, you know, gospels that you want to read through with your unbelieving friends, book studies you want to do, um, et cetera. Um, be thinking that way, okay? We want to be changed as we hear God's word, but that change doesn't, doesn't limit itself from, uh, you know, 9.30 to 11, right? It's, it's meant to spill over into our day-to-day life. Well, this morning in week four, we're going to turn again to Mark, and we're going to be asking questions about what does it mean to believe, or what does it mean to have faith? We, we talk a lot about faith in religious settings, but what does that five-letter word mean? What does it look like? We're going to start with two readings uh, from Mark chapter 6. They're actually back-to-back readings that illustrate for us what does it mean to believe or have faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Mark's going to, I'm sorry, Rob's going to come and read for us first Mark chapter 6, verses 30 to 44. This is the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And then Sam will read the passage immediately after that, which is um, about Jesus walking on the water to his disciples. And, and the reason we're reading both of those is don't miss the connection. At the end, when Jesus is walking on the water, Mark is going to make a connection back to the feeding of the 5,000. I want you to see that. So we'll, we'll look at both of those passages. After that, Moira is going to come and read Hebrews uh, chapter 10, 19 through 23 and, and listen in that text for the connection between our faith and the faithfulness of God. That's going to be a strong theme that we see in the Mark passages, our faith and the faithfulness or provision of God. And then lastly, Lisa's going to read for us Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17, which shows us that our faith in God is a lifestyle. It is how the righteous live. We live by faith. And so, uh, Rob, could you start us off? Come and read for us Mark chapter 6, verses 30 to 44. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. 
send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Mark six forty-five through 52. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side of Bethsaida while he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost, and cried out, for all they saw him, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped. And they were utterly astonished, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 23. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Romans 1, chapter 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. All right, well, before we dig into uh, Mark's writings this morning, we need to do a little uh, foundation work. We need to... um, talk about words, uh, because what we read are just words, and if we don't understand words properly, then we're going to import all kinds of wrong definitions into what we just read. So um, so if you had your Bibles open to Mark 6, you can just put your finger in there. We're coming back there in just a moment. But let's first talk about just a few uh, words. We'll, we'll define our terms a little bit. Uh, the first word that we need to make sure we understand uh, biblically is the word faith. Uh, this whole section of Mark is addressing the nature of faith. I think we'll see that when we get there. Uh, so as we, as we enter it, we want to be, make sure we're clear on what faith is. Now in our day and age, I think many people wrongly equate faith with the idea of blind faith. 
Uh, you know you're talking to someone who defines faith in this way when faith becomes the opposite of reason. And isn't that the way that the world by and large kind of sets things up, where you have, you have reason and you have faith? When people define faith in this way, it leads us to all kinds of false dichotomies or divisions that aren't, that don't make sense. The world itself becomes divided into, well, the people who have faith and then those who don't have faith. And those who have faith are generally thought perhaps as more superstitious, while those without faith are more reasoned or scientific. Now, that's a flawed way to think about the world because it's grounded on a flawed definition of faith. Faith is not simply being superstitious. And this flawed definition of faith causes all kinds of problems when we try to talk to people about faith in Jesus because what they may think is that we're talking about blind faith in Jesus, which is not what we're talking about at all. We are not inviting people to consider Jesus blindly, that is, without reason or without evidence. Um, We are inviting them to consider the reasons and consider the evidence for trusting in Christ. So let's begin our time with a better definition of faith. Um, This isn't a um, theological definition per se. I literally typed this into my online dictionary, and here's what it says faith is. Simple definition of faith is, quote, placing trust or confidence in something or someone. Placing trust or confidence in something or someone. Now, by that definition, brothers and sisters, everyone makes decisions of various kinds by faith every day. Um, For example, most of you probably arrive to this place in an automobile, car, truck, van, motorcycle. Uh, If you came in an automobile, raise your hand. Yeah, nobody came by horse, nobody came by camel, nobody walked, right? We drove. Uh, Do you know all of the things that could go horribly wrong with riding in a steel cage traveling 45 miles an hour down pavement with exploding gasoline happening, you know, five feet from your feet? Did you consider that this morning as you got in your car? When you turn that engine, it's lighting explosions of gasoline mere feet away from your body, and you put probably not only yourself, but those most precious to you in this steel cage and drove 45 miles an hour down on pavement. I mean, should that scare us at all? (laughs) You're not wrong. If, if you, if you're not scared and want to be more scared, I, I find that Don is great, uh, conversationalist for these kinds of topics. Don knows all kinds of things about mechanical systems and electrical systems and how they can fail, and yet he still flies airplanes, which I just find so fascinating. You and I didn't think about any of that as we got into our car this morning, and, and we didn't think about the fact that we were driving within mere feet of other steel cages driving 45 miles an hour down the street with exploding gasoline in them, did we? Um, I know I, for one, I didn't empirically test the engine and fuel lines. I didn't test the brake system. I didn't even check the fluids or the tire pressure before I came to service this morning. I got in, I turned the key, and I drove by faith that that steel cage of exploding gasoline wouldn't catch fire or veer off the road uncontrollably. It would get me here safely. 
I would submit to you that every time you pull food out of your refrigerator, you are trusting. You are doing that by faith, that it actually kept things cool enough and there isn't bacteria in your food that will make you sick. Yet when is the last time you checked the temperature of your refrigerator? I don't even know what temperature a refrigerator needs to be at for a healthy level. I just throw my food in there, get it out, and eat it. Tomorrow's Monday. How many of us will go to work without bothering to call our boss and say, hey, are you still going to pay me for this week? We, we go in faith. Can you believe that? You give up 40 hours a week in faith that these people will cut you another paycheck. You and I, as limited human beings, we don't have the time, we don't have the skill, do we, to empirically test the validity of hundreds of assumptions we make day in and day out. We live most of the time by faith in someone or something. And so faith is that first term that we need to clarify. We, faith is trusting someone or something else. So that's one term. Now that leads us to a second term that we have to understand before we jump into Mark chapter 6, and that is the object of faith. The object of faith, what is that? Well, the person or thing that we trust by faith is called faith's object. And so in that automobile example, um, the object of our faith, well, it could be a couple of different things. It could be the engineers that designed our car. We trust that they did their jobs well. Or it could be the manufacturers that built our car, that there aren't bolts flying out of them. Um, things have been assembled properly. We might trust the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, which I didn't even know existed until I was preparing for this message. They're the ones that actually uh, determine the, the highway safety protocols. When, when you hear cars winning safety awards, it's uh, recommendations and regulations by the NHTSA. Um, I trust consumer reports when I buy a car that they're going to be honest with me and tell me about which cars are, are more uh, uh, quality, higher quality than others. Or you might trust the mechanic who last inspected your car. I mean, there are lots of these objects of faith, right? But whoever it is that you trust in order to believe that your car is safe to drive, that is the object of your faith. Does that make sense? So faith is trusting someone or something And the object of the faith is the person or thing that you trust. Now, pay attention uh, at at this point because we're coming to a really important part of all of this. And the important part is how the object of faith relates to the nature of faith. And here's what I mean. There is a natural relationship between the object of your faith and the reasonableness or blindness of your faith. The more reliable the object of your faith, the the more reliable their credentials, their authority, their track record, the more reason you have to put your faith in that object. Let me say that again. The more reliable the object of your faith, the more reason you have to trust that object. And so, in other words, it makes sense to trust people or things that have proven themselves as trustworthy. This is contrary to blind faith, which is when we trust someone or something that has not yet shown itself to be reliable. So, um, not to beat a dead horse, but because I think it's helpful, I feel safe putting my family, the people I love most, 
in that speeding cage of exploding gasoline because I trust the credentials of Honda, the authority of the NHTSA, the word of consumer reports, and the reliability of my mechanic. I think my faith is well-reasoned. I think your faith is well-reasoned. I don't think you're crazy for driving your car to church. But if I asked you to drive a gas-powered car that I built on my own, you would literally be taking your life into your hands. I would be asking you to drive that automobile on blind faith because I have zero credentials, I have zero authority, and I have zero track record of building anything safe. Do you see how that works? That relationship between faith's object and the reasonableness or the reason we have to trust it. You see, our society talks as if there's this huge faith divide. There's this group of people over here that live by faith, this other group over here that does not. The divide isn't over faith. The divide is over the object of our faith. We live by different objects of faith. We all live by faith. We make hundreds of of decisions by faith. The difference is in the object of our faith. That's where the divide exists. So faith is putting our trust or confidence in something, and then faith's object is whatever we're putting our faith in. Now, with those two concepts perhaps a little more clear, Let's turn our attention back to Mark chapter 6, because I think they are the keys that will unlock this passage for us. So if you have your Bible with us, with you, open to Mark chapter 6. Uh, because I gave a, a pretty lengthy introduction, I want to read this whole section about the, the feeding of the 5,000 again, just so it's, it's fresh in our minds. So uh, let's read again Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many of them, now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. We're not going to spend a ton of time on that, but you could preach a whole sermon on that sentence. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five, and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down by groups in hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. So, here in Mark chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 people out of nothing but five loaves 
and two fish. So do the math. Five loaves, 5,000 people. Loaf might be, I don't know, a little bigger than pita. And each one of those lasted 1,000 people, and there were still leftovers. Now, I think one fascinating aspect of this story is, though it's generally called the feeding of the 5,000, and, and the crowd is certainly an important group of people on the stage, Mark is really zooming in, isn't he, on Jesus' interaction with the disciples. He, he doesn't give us a lot of details about what Jesus said to the crowd. He's really zeroing in on, on what Jesus is saying to the disciples. In response to the hungry crowd, in verse 37, Jesus turns to the disciples and says, will you give them something to eat? Now, before we look at the disciples' response, let's consider first their frame of mind. Look, um, if you have your Bibles open, look a little bit ahead of where we uh, read in uh, Mark chapter 6, verses 7 to 13. So we didn't read this, but just look at that section. If your Bible has like, if your Bible editors put little headings in, um, it might read something like, Jesus sends out the apostles. And if we were to read that section, what we'd find out is that Jesus sends out these very men who he's saying, you give them something to eat. He sent out these very men two by two on their first missionary journey, kind of solo without him for some undisclosed amount of time. They return where we picked up in our reading in verse 30. Did you catch that? Verse 30 begins, the apostles returned to Jesus. Where are they returning from? Well, they're returning from that journey that he sent them out two by two. And they told him all that they had done and taught. So this sounds like a longer trip, right? The the sense is not that this was an overnight. They were out for some time. They were probably working hard. Now they're coming back to Jesus. Verse 31, and he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. So it doesn't explicitly tell us how long these guys were on the road, but it's been long enough that Jesus sees their weariness and says, you guys need rest. We need to get away from here. We need to go to a desolate place so that you can rest. And they make plans. They get to that desolate place where supposedly no one can find them. And what happens? A crowd shows up. And so instead of rest, these men find themselves faced with more ministry. Now Jesus has compassion on the crowd. He begins Teaching, you could imagine this as, as packing up your family perhaps, driving, you know, eight or nine hours to the beach, you arrive to the beach house, you get in the door, throw your bags on the bed, and the office calls. That's what just happened to these men. Okay? Jesus has compassion on the crowd, he, he begins teaching. Jesus teaches for one hour. Jesus teaches for two hours. And soon these weary disciples who were promised rest, they realized, hey, it's getting late in the day. That's what verse 35 tells us, as it grew late. So Jesus has been teaching all day. Now, perhaps they think, well, maybe, you know, Jesus likes this sort of thing. Maybe he just got caught up in the moment. Maybe he doesn't realize what time of day it is that he's been going all day. Maybe we should go talk to him about it. So that's what they do. Verse 35. When it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is late. Send the crowd away. Let them get something to eat. That's a reasonable request, is it not? 
I mean, who would deny these tired, weary disciples a break so that the crowds can get some dinner? And so can you imagine now, in their place, hearing these words from Jesus? You give them something to eat. You. You see, we need to slow down here so that we can see what's really going on. I don't think Jesus is just giving his friends a hard time. What he's actually doing here is he is exposing the object of their faith. They had just returned from a successful mission trip. What or who do they credit deep down for ministry success? Do they see the power and strength of Jesus working through their weakness? Or deep down, do they think they generally have what it takes to do ministry, to do the job, get it done? Is Jesus the object of their faith? Or are they trusting in someone or something else? To find out what they trust, Jesus is giving them a test. When these men have nothing left to give, and he knows it, he's the one that suggested they come away for rest, right? He knows these guys are tired. He knows they're spent. And it's at this precise moment that he asks them to do what they obviously cannot do. Feed this crowd. Now, what is their response? Because it's revealing. Look at the second half of verse 37. And they said to him, here it comes. Here's the object of their faith. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii? Now, convert that into U.S. dollars. We're talking about $12,000. Should we go and buy $12,000 worth of bread and give it to them to eat? So I ask you, what is the object of their faith. What are they trusting in? Is it Jesus? No, it is not Jesus. They are trusting in themselves. And at rock bottom, they know that especially in this moment, they are not sufficient to provide a meal for 5,000 people. They're 12 guys. They're tired. You want us to serve 5,000 people. Where are we even supposed to get this bread? Can't do it. No way. No how. And so they're stuck. Now, why are they stuck? I mean, is the problem really Jesus' request? Is it the demand that Jesus makes of them? Is that what, what gets them stuck? Well, I, I think they think that's the problem. I think they think, how could you ask us to do this? But the problem is not Jesus' command. It's not his request. The problem is they are trusting in a bad object. They are resting their faith on something insufficient, on themselves. Their problem is their self-trust. Here's another way to frame it. If this account read differently and Jesus came to them uh, before he said anything about feeding and said, Hey, guys. I'm going to give you the experience of a lifetime. I want you to watch this. I'm going to feed this crowd out of nothing. And I want you to be a part of that. Are you guys in? I mean, would they have responded with the kind of response that we see there in verse 37? Jesus, how could you ask this of us? 
No. I mean, Jesus knows what he's going to do. And the whole point is to get at what are these men trusting in? When we trust in insufficient objects, we get stuck. I don't know what that looks like for you. It could feel like anxiety rising. It could uh, mean that you feel overwhelmed or fearful or even angry. If the stakes are high enough, we uh, can slip into despair or sink into depression. I mean, I, I think we've probably all experienced this in one degree or another. When, when someone in authority over you, whether that's a parent or a boss or a teacher, requires of you something that you know you just don't have the capacity to do, what is your emotional response? It's not good, right? We get stuck. Now, we have a couple of different options when we're in that place. We can fail either by just giving up and playing dead or by striving, knowing that, hey, this isn't going to work out. In either case, that often results in shame and guilt and thinking, I just don't have what it takes. Or the other option is we can find someone or something that we can trust, who is sufficient to come through for us, to provide what we need. And so what these men need right now is a better object of faith, one that is sufficient. I'd submit to us that that these are not abstract theological or philosophical concepts. Our society right now, brothers and sisters, right here in Pittsburgh, is drowning in anxiety. We are drowning in fear. We are drowning in depression. In uh, 2022, one in seven adults in Allegheny County bought medication for anxiety or depression. One in seven. Now, I'm not saying that if everyone would trust Jesus, no one would need depression medication. If you're here and you take medication for anxiety or depression, I am not questioning your decision at all. All I'm saying is we live in a place that is with, with people who feel like they are hopeless and have no options. Someone that you know and love is probably walking through situations like that right now. And only Jesus, medication or not, doctors or not, only Jesus has the reliability, the credentials, and the authority to be sufficient for all of them. You see, this story confronts us with the fact that Jesus, he wants to be trusted. He wants to be depended upon. He wants these guys to say, Lord, we can't do this right now. Could you provide for this crowd? Could you work a miracle? We've seen the miracles before, Lord. Would you come through in this moment for this crowd, for these people? We know that because of what he does next in Mark 6. He doesn't, he doesn't scold these guys, right? He doesn't lecture them. What does he do? He just proves that he is sufficient for the crowd and he is sufficient for them. Look at verses 41 and 42. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. Now, that might be the key verse in this passage. They all 
ate and were satisfied. So what we see is the the disciples are insufficient. They don't have $12,000. They don't have bread to feed the crowd. They don't have the strength to travel into town to purchase and bring back all of that food. And conversely, Jesus doesn't need $12,000, does he? He doesn't need to go anywhere to any bakery or any market. He is more than sufficient. And so without breaking a sweat, Jesus miraculously provides a feast for $5,000 hungry people. And Mark notes, there are plenty of leftovers. We didn't even like just make it through the crowd. There are 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. Who could be more sufficient than Jesus? Who is more worthy of your trust and mine than this man? Who is sufficient for the need of your unsaved neighbors, your lost coworkers, your wandering family members. Jesus is. And so as we encounter our need, as we encounter their need, what we are best equipped to do is give them Jesus. To, to give them this Savior, to tell them, just like Mark is telling us, of his amazing uh, capability and track record to come through and welcome them to trust him. You see, in the end, what our friends need is not uh, our pity in those moments, although we can, we can uh, kind of suffer with them. We can give them our compassion. They don't need our false assurances that things will work out okay in the end. We don't know that. What we need to tell them is that there lives today a Savior who can feed 5,000 hungry people without breaking a sweat in the blink of an eye. No questions asked. The feeding of the 5,000 is not an isolated event in our Bible. I mean, it would be one thing if this were the only story from which we were to draw this kind of conclusion. It is one of dozens. In the book of Mark alone, there are just public miracle after public miracle done by Jesus in broad daylight. These are not things done behind closed doors that a few people knew about and told us about. A lot of religious claims start that way, not Christianity. So much of the New Testament is public, broad daylight historical events. And the cumulative evidence shouts at us that there is something unique about this man that he is more trustworthy than anything else, that he is more reliable than anybody else. I mean, just short sample, right? We could say, well, let's read the passage right after this one. I wonder what that's going to tell us. Let's look at it. Verse 45. We read this. I'm actually going to read past where we read this morning. Verse 45. Immediately. So the crowds are full They had their dinner. Jesus finishes teaching. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat to go go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. So here it is again. He's sending these guys on. Go somewhere else, guys. Get some rest. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat, so this is the boat with the disciples, was out on the sea, And Jesus was alone on the land, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. So here they are again, craving rest. They get rest. No, 
Now they're struggling against the wind, trying to get across this lake. And about the fourth watch of the night, that's like 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., he came to them walking on the sea. Now, why is he walking on the water? I think, I think mostly just if you think about the phrase of, you know, someone says of, of someone else in the neighborhood at work, oh, that person thinks they walk on water. What are they trying to get at? What they're trying to get at is some essence of divinity. This person thinks they're better than anybody else. So you import that into this, and Jesus is just showing off, right? He's just showing off that he's better than anybody else. Okay, you can actually walk on the water. Is that what's going on here? That's not what's going on here. About the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. So they think they're done for. Here we are, we're tired. I mean, they might have been like borderline delirious. We don't know. Um, They're exhausted. They're struggling physically. And here comes a man walking on the sea. I mean, what would you think? But immediately he spoke to them and said, now what's he going to speak to them? What's he going to speak? Take heart. Take heart. Do not be afraid. And when he got in the boat with them, the wind ceased. Again, their problem goes away. Jesus gets in the boat. What they were struggling all night against, gone. What's the point of him walking on the water? The point of him walking on the water is he's going to go care for these men. He's going to go take care of them again. And they were all utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. What didn't they understand about the loaves? Well, they didn't understand that Jesus could be trusted. They didn't understand that, yes, he would come through for them then on land, and now he will come through for them here on the sea. Let's keep reading. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, now, now what's Mark trying to get at us? He feeds, the, he feeds the crowd, he rescues the disciples from the lake, and now what's he doing? And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or the countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. I mean, I I don't know. That's like, that's less than 30 verses. And Mark is just hitting us over the head. You can trust this guy. You can trust this guy. You can trust this guy. This isn't like one event where he helped one person. This is just his nature. This is who this Jesus of Nazareth is. We might think, well, it was a long time ago in a place far away. But if you keep reading Mark, you'll find more. There's actually a second story of the miraculous feeding. This was of the 5,000. If you keep reading to Mark chapter 8, there's a feeding of 4,000. There are tons of similarities. 
The crowd is hungry. Jesus is teaching late into the day. The disciples come and say, hey, dismiss the crowd. Jesus again says, you give them something to eat. The disciples again complain, and again, Jesus feeds the crowd. But you want to know what the one difference is? The one difference is location. Here in Mark chapter 6, this is a group of Jewish people. Over in Mark chapter 8, it's Gentiles. Now, if you want to understand what the dynamic between Jews and Gentiles were like, think uh, like black-white relationships back in the 1800s in America. Not good. Antagonistic. Hateful one of another. And yet Jesus, through these feeding miracles, is saying, I am sufficient for all people. I am not just a Messiah to the Jews. I am not just a Messiah to one nation. Wherever I go, I care for those who come to me. And then we keep reading Mark. That's only chapter 8. There's like 15 chapters. And we keep reading Mark, and we get to his crucifixion. And if you don't know the end of the story, then you, like the disciples, might think, okay, well... This must be it, right? Now it's all over. His power finally ran out. He really did have a limit. And he comes back to life. (laughs) I mean, what do you say about a guy who you kill and death only lasts three days? This guy is teeming with life and power and goodness. And he gets back up from the grave and he's walking around again. You want a sufficient object for your faith? where you need never be anxious about whether he will or will not come through for you, you look for a guy who can't stay dead. That's a great guy to trust. Who time after time cares for the poor and the sick and those who have no options. And when you have no options, he will care for you. If Mark's portrayal of Jesus of Nazareth is right, then Jesus of Nazareth not only loves to provide for those who trust him, but he is available this very day. He did not die. He is alive. That's what we celebrated last week at Easter, right? And this very thing is what the world needs to see. It's what the world needs to hear, and it's what the world needs to hear from us. Faith in Christ is not blind. We have reason upon reason upon reason, evidence upon evidence upon evidence to trust this man, to follow him, to obey him, whatever the cost. Blindness is closing our eyes to the evidence. And so when you think about that unsaved friend or neighbor, coworker, whoever they are, think about imploring them, begging them even, to consider the evidence to trust this man. When Jesus stepped on the scene in Mark, we've we've talked about this before, the first words that he speaks are in Mark 1.15, where he, he goes around preaching saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That is exactly, friends, what we offer the world around us. Repent, meaning don't trust in those things that are not Jesus any longer. They are insufficient. They are ill-fated objects of your trust. They will let you down. They will, they are not God. And trust this man. That is why he came. So repent and believe, repent and believe. That is why he went to the cross. He was crucified so that our 
unbelief could be forgiven, that our turning to bad objects of faith could be forgiven, and we could instead trust him and he would accept us. That is the Christian gospel. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray to that end, brothers and sisters. As we conclude our time in Mark 6, we're going to open up into a time of prayer. And that prayer of response can be intercession for our world. It can be prayer of confession. Anything that is on your heart to say to this king who rules today, this man who is available to be trusted today, we get the privilege of now speaking to. So I will begin us, and then you are invited to to pray whatever is on your heart to him. Lord, I am just freshly in awe of your mercy and your kindness to so many people when you walk the earth. And who are we to doubt now today that that kindness and mercy has ceased or stopped? And so help us believe, grant us the faith now to trust you and nobody but you. Lord, because who could come through for us like you can? Help us to have your gospel at the the tip of our lips, Lord. No matter who we we interact with, other believers, non-believers, Lord, how would our words be better spent than speaking of you? You are worthy of it all. And we, we pray to you now.